The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we just sang, repeated the word come as a request. I want to now pray similarly and ask you to come and do what we just sang about. Affect us. Affect us with your scriptures, the word, to show us yourself, particularly Jesus, the living word. Show us the kindness that you through him have worked on us and in us and then mean to work through us, particularly in the church. A blessing to us and a sign to the world that you are real. Would you open up the scripture here this morning and would you use it to affect us and draw us on to be a people who love who love you, who love like you, who love your people, who love the world. This is a, an easily spoken word, and for us human beings with fallen natures, a tall order. So come. Speak and change and build your church to your honor and for our good, we pray this. Amen. How can you tell if someone's a Christian, a believer in the sense that we talked about last week from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, we, we saw some things there, some facts that were discussed last week. Those doctrines there are critical, that you have faith and hope in God and what he has done in Christ. Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ glorified. Those are the doctrines that, when believed, make a Christian. But what I'm asking is, how can you tell if someone actually believes them? Can you tell from what they wear or what they don't wear? Or how they act or talk? or what they don't do and don't say, whether a person goes to church, whether she reads her Bible. Are, are those the, the markers? They're not irrelevant. They, they certainly matter. They are a piece of the larger picture for sure, but they're not the most important markers for genuine faith. That's something else. Our passage today in 1 Peter, towards the end of chapter 1, just a couple of verses, really a verse and a half, it, it moves us towards a specific command that may at first seem a little bit out of place until you remember the whole context of the previous weeks. God pursuing us, making us believers, putting, faith, putting our faith and hope into him. That's the previous context. And then what follows, having gone through that, then love. The next statement, the first command after that. Which then, if you think about it, oh, that makes some sense because isn't 
the Apostle Paul saying Galatians, the thing that matters is faith working itself out as love. Didn't Jesus say in John 13, they'll know you are my people, they'll know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Love. So, a disciple seen, a disciple shown, faith actually lived out, looks like it comes out as love. You will love one another from hearts of love. The new birth. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to think about love from a new heart. We're going to do it just in a verse and a half, 22, and into the first part of verse 23. I'm going to begin reading them in verse 20 to, to see the, the flow of it. And then we'll just draw out two observations from the passage. And what I hope comes from this, I, I prayed at the beginning, and I'll come back to this at the end. What I hope comes from this is not just some sort of a treatise on the topic of love. There we heard it. Good. The, the goal is that we would actually be a people like this who love one another. That something different would happen. So I'm going to talk for a number of minutes about some concepts. But please don't get lost in the concepts. Realize what God has said, what God is doing here, and what is supposed to, what must come out of the end of this for our good is that we be a people who walk like this. Love for one another. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read beginning in verse 20 down through verse 23. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. First Peter chapter 1. So, two observations. Here's the first. When we embraced the gospel, God rebirthed us with new hearts of love. When we embrace the gospel, God rebirthed us with new hearts of love. It's helpful, I think, to notice the structure of the two verses that we're looking at this morning. Obviously, the end of verse 22 is where the command is, it's, and it's right in the middle of these verses, the end of 22, the command about love, which we're going to come to in the second observation. But what we're dealing with here first are kind of the two brackets around that, kind of like the two bookends, beginning of 22 and the beginning of 23. And both together are creating the context for the command by talking about something that has already happened to every Christian. What, what's already happened to all of us. In 22, you all, having purified your souls, that is, already in the past, something's happened. And then 23 literally reads very similarly. You all, having been born again. Again, something's happened in the past to us already. 
So they're, they're sort of complementary pieces like bookends, kind of like looking at things from a different perspective, but they, they create a context around the command talking about our salvation. But verse 22 might at first be a little confusing because of how the language actually comes across. It says, we have purified our souls, and we have done so by our obedience to the truth, which some people come away from that, just reading just that verse, they, they get from it this impression that Peter is saying that we saved ourselves by obeying God's teaching. So God told us what was true. He put the truth out there. We heard it. We obeyed it. And then by doing that, we made ourselves pure, morally clean. We saved ourselves by our obedience. You can see where somebody gets that, just reading this, that one verse, but it's a significant misunderstanding. It's a big miss. Whole Bible points in a very different direction. And then other people knowing the whole Bible points in a very different direction from that, kind of maybe like veer into the other ditch and say something else about this passage. They, they want to steer away from that misunderstanding and describe it in a, in a more theologically safe way, but again, in inaccuracy. They claim that Peter here is talking about people who are Christians already, but who in some way are engaged in the sanctification process, purifying themselves in that sense, cleansing themselves in that sense, hearing the truth that God teaches and obeying it. So then this phrase is describing Christians who are in the process of maturing, who have grown to some degree which of course certainly happens, but also isn't what this verse is talking about. This verse isn't saying, you who are maturing Christians, now I command you to do something more. Rather, it's a command to all Christians to live out what we have been made to be. This beginning phrase in verse 22 is about what's happened to every Christian when you became a Christian, when you obeyed the truth which is now the third time in this chapter that Peter has used the word obedience in connection to our salvation. It's just Peter's way of talking about it. We are, remember from verse 14, we are all obedient children. Because, remember from the beginning back in verse 2, we were chosen by the Father, set apart and called by the Spirit for obedience to the Son and for sprinkling with his blood. So, the gospel is certainly a message about an offer. It's certainly a gift. because It's about giving God's grace and putting it out there. It's, it's an offer about a gift, but it is also a command. That's how Jesus actually introduced his preaching. The kingdom of God is here, so repent and believe. That's a command. Paul, in the book of Acts, God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. He says the word command. It's an offer that you can't refuse. God commands. And we then, by the grace of God, the grace of God that has opened our eyes and opened our ears, we, we encounter that command with an ear-opening grace. We hear it. And we obey it. 
Repent, turn to me, and you will be saved. That's the truth, and we hear that and say, yes, by the grace of God. And when you did that, you purified your soul, which, again, draws some people up short. I purified my own soul? How did that happen? How did I do that? It's just a point of view issue. It's just a perspective issue. I, I could say, for example, I, I could say, I regularly add oil to one of my cars that leaks. I regularly add oil. I could also say, I regularly drive my car to Jiffy Lube and the mechanic adds the oil. Or the mechanic puts the hose in and the pump adds the oil. All three of those things are true. It just is a question of which, which point of view do I want to take? How do I want to tell the story? It's all true. The Bible is extremely clear that the ultimate proper point of view, when we're talking about salvation, is God. And all throughout this, this chapter, that is completely clear. We, we can't just read this one verse. We've got to see it in the context of the chapter. Back in verse 3, for instance, God's the one who caused us to be born again. He caused it. In verse 23, the, the other bookend around this command here says, having been born again. That's a passive statement. We received something. I didn't make myself. I was given. So the, the Bible is clear everywhere, even in this very chapter, that the proper final ultimate perspective is that God causes new life. God causes cleansing. God saves. God makes us new. God purifies us. That, that's completely clear. So we need to be clear about that. And yet, verse 22, we're seeing, tells the story of our salvation from our point of view. Leaves the responsibility and kind of the onus on us because there is an important command coming here. And he wants to make clear, he wants to keep reminding us we do things that have consequences. When we embrace the gospel, not when we embrace something else, not when we tried some other procedure or process, when we embrace the gospel, when we obeyed the truth, we purified ourselves. Not by some other means, by the gospel. And that then puts us in a position to hear the next command, which we'll come to later. So he keeps us kind of front and center. We embrace the gospel. It matters. Our souls then were washed clean and purified. But of course, it's God who did the washing, ultimately. It's God who does the purifying, ultimately. And he did it for a reason. Purified for a sincere brotherly love. Notice that's not the command yet. That's just a statement, a fact. True of all Christians. And it is an intentional fact, purified for this. We embrace the gospel, we become Christians. God ultimately did that with an intention in mind. He, he wanted something to happen in us. He wanted us to end up to be changed people who now have this, this in us, this sincere brotherly love. That is, we love the brethren, the, the people of God. We love other Christians 
like we did not before, but do now, sincerely, truly so. So think, think about what's being said here. God intentionally implanted in you. This is an interesting way of thinking about salvation. We, it is certainly proper, and we are accustomed to thinking about salvation as being about God wanting to forgive my sin or God wanting to join me back up to him and create a relationship with me. Yeah, those are all good and valid ways. But here's something different. God intentionally implanted in you. He marked you with love. That's what he did. Like a birthmark, so to speak. Or maybe like um, giving you a distinguishing family trait. You know, you look at kids and you can see their parents in them. Well, God did something on purpose so that he, people would look at his kids and see him in us. We're all marked by and resemble then our Father in a, in a ton of different ways. We're being made Christ-like in many different ways. But Here's the way mentioned in this verse. A significant, I might even say primary way, the thing that matters. Faith worked out as love. We're marked by him, and we then resemble him by having a sincere love of God and of his people, his family. We're drawn to them. Our hearts feel for them and enjoy them and ache when they hurt and rejoice when they triumph. Affection. That happened to you. That's who you are. You're a Christian. All of us. It's part of the, the bondage that we were cut free from, the, the chain that, that pulled us in one direction. We talked about this last week. Well, well part of what it meant to be cut free from that and part of the, the, the stain kind of washed out, purified out of us is this bent towards love of self. We used to be, you used to be impossibly stuck on loving yourself. First and foremost, and seeing everything and everyone is about you and for you and living life thinking about how does this benefit you. Not every single thing in every single moment, but consistently and habitually, that's, that's what you were. That's what people are. We use words like selfishness and pride and we kind of talk about how everybody's got this basic proud. What we're saying is that everybody is basically stuck on themselves. That's what we are what it is to be human. That's home base. And while you can deviate from that, like throwing a ball into the air, so, yet yeah, some people can throw a ball further, some people can throw, throw higher, but it always comes down. You can deviate from it, but it always settles back down. We were stuck with self as the ground of my life, me. I love me by nature. You love, guess, you, by nature. That's where we all were, stuck there. But that changed. Verse 23 puts it as we were born again. A new life, something happened. You were set free from that. Not just 
no longer being pulled one way towards self, that the chain was cut, but now there's, there's something new happened. A seed has been planted inside of you that is not perishable, but imperishable. Now he goes on to be talking about the word of God here. We're going to come to that next week. But notice the argument for, for this morning's sake here. Something not perishable, but imperishable has been planted in us, and like a seed is growing, and it's not going to wilt, it's not going to die at the end of the year. It's going to ever grow. He loves this perishable, imperishable contrast. Third time it's come up in this chapter so far. This thing was planted in us and has begun to grow and will blossom and mature. That happened when we were purchased by Christ's blood, not by perishable silver and gold. And when that happened, you were given, remember verse 4, an imperishable inheritance. Kept in heaven for you, safe. What he's getting at here is that something happened when, when God moved on you in the gospel, or put from your perspective, when you embraced the truth. When God moved on you, something was planted in you that isn't mature yet, but it's growing. It's not going to die. It is imperishable. It's growing, and it's going to become a massive, full, mature tree one day. A new life has been planted in you. So no longer are you only just not pulled towards self, but you are inclined towards. You are now implanted with a seed that is like him. A life like him. Christ-like. Which means you not, not perfectly, but increasingly so. You see and think and feel and want contemplate things like he does. You resemble him. There's something growing in you that makes you more inclined to want what he wants, to approve of what he approves of, and what does God supremely approve of and love and want? Himself and his people. Himself in his people. Himself with his people. You're being bent that way, shaped that way. God saved you for that, for a sincere brotherly, sisterly love. That happened. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. I don't feel like that, frankly. Well, there's a command that comes up then. What do you know? But that happened to you. You have something in you, planted in you a new life that cannot go other. It is this. You were saved for a sincere Brotherly love, a new heart of love lives in you. And now then there's a command of what you do with that. The second point. Having this new heart of love, the first point, Christians love one another. Real simple. Having this new heart of love, the first point, Christians love one another and they do so earnestly. That's the command. 
the sincere affection, the, the new heart that's in us has to go somewhere, has to be put into action. And the fact that it's a command that's stated here as a, as a command to us steps right into the assumption that, you know, we don't do that perfectly, fully, completely like we should. That's assumed. That's why there's a command here. So there's a setup, there's a context, and then the command, put that into action. Not that we don't ever, ever, never do it. We probably struggle to love earnestly. That's the qualifying word. We kind of emphasis falls on that word earnestly here. Love earnestly with constancy that doesn't waver, with some vigor. When it's easy and when it's hard, when you know what it would be to love and when you're not really quite certain, try anyway. Step into it. Love earnestly. Put the affection into action. Love of one another, that is, again, brotherly love, love of the people of God from a pure heart, it says. Which, of course, clarifies that there's no manipulation in it. It's not faked. It's not to get something, to to look a certain way. It's, It's real. Love genuinely and vigorously the people of God. That's the command. An affection-motivated doing of good. Now, I wanted to think about this a little bit myself, try to understand it, maybe to, to apply it. And I had to kind of work with the word love because it sounds so familiar so let me put it to you this way, and maybe this, maybe this helps. I began to think about how does God love us? What does that look like for us? And so I'm going to rephrase the command to love like this. Give righteous grace and mercy. See if that helps you think about it a little bit differently. Righteous grace and mercy. Where righteous reminds us that God defines love, not, not the world around us, when not, not even ourselves, that God defines what is and is not love, and it would be according to what matches his law, what is right and good. It's righteous, grace and mercy. And so in this context, I'm thinking about giving grace and mercy, giving to another, giving to you good that you need but don't have, and don't deserve grace. Giving to another a good that you don't have, don't deserve, but need grace. Or mercy, giving you a release from some difficult thing that you do have and do deserve. I help you out of it somehow. I release you from it somehow. That's mercy. Grace and mercy to push that towards another person actively and earnestly. That certainly leaves room for for saying no. It certainly leaves room for confronting a problem or, or for disagreeing. But to earnestly seek to give grace and to seek to give mercy in a righteous way, that's how God loves us. 
And so I think that helps me, at least, think about how I'm supposed to love other people. That's the command. To love, to push good towards, to righteously grace and mercy another. So how are you doing at that? Maybe take a second here and just move your mind around the circles. Maybe the seat right next to you. Maybe the the row, the people in this room. Move your mind around the circles in which you live and see if God puts his finger on something. Just that, right there, him. Maybe you're sitting next to, maybe you're married, you're sitting next to your spouse. Start there. Do you love your spouse like this? Righteous grace and mercy, earnestly, from a pure heart. Or your kids, if if you're in a row with your children, or your parents, sitting next to a friend. The people that are in your your circle of friends here in the church, ah, the whole room, actually. Everybody in the room. The people of God here, the household of faith. Do you earnestly love these people? This people. And I'm I'm not asking about the idea of the church. I'm talking about the individuals of this particular church, your church. Do you live with them to give to them earnestly righteous grace and righteous mercy? Do you love them actively? I don't, I don't know if I do that, but I don't, certainly don't have any conflict with anybody. I, I am in and I am out, and I haven't had a fight with anybody in this church in years. That's not what I'm talking about. This is not avoiding conflict. It's the giving of grace. It's the giving of mercy. It's being around someone to, from the heart, bless. Do them good. It is not sufficient to to live on an island devoid of conflict. This involves engagement, connection to people. Now, nobody nobody can be, nobody's meant to be everything to everybody, so I'm not saying that. Most certainly, there's going to be different different levels of connection with different people. You, You can't even know this number of people, let alone a larger church gathering, but there has to be some way that this command can be obeyed by you towards the people of God. The people sitting in this room. Earnestly love one another. So is there any repentance in order for you? Some sort of a change in course. Now, I'm probably talking to some people here. I stand at the door after every church service. So I see the people who are racing me to the door. I know who you are. 
I'm probably talking to you right now. And what I want to point out to you is that this is a command, not a suggestion. And it's not about your feeling. It's about your action. And it's not for your enslavement. It's for your blessing. God meant it as part of your salvation. We'll talk a little more about that in a second. About why he meant that. So maybe there's something that you've got to say, I need to change, I need to take a different turn in this, and what do you know, tonight we've got an opportunity. I didn't plan this this way, but we've got this thing we call family night tonight. We're going to just get together, we're going to pray from 5.30 to 6, and then we're going to eat and hang out. For me, maybe for you, half that sounds really threatening because that sounds like small talk, and I do not like small talk. I'm not a social, I am, I am a highly introverted person. I am a highly introverted person. I say to all of you, highly. That sounds threatening. Okay. This is a command. I don't know what you do with that. You probably don't do the same thing with it that the extrovert does, but you gotta do something with it. Love one another. Give to one another righteous grace and mercy. Maybe there's some change of course that you need to take. And as you contemplate that, it is probable that you're going to bump into somebody who's done you wrong or who will do you wrong. That's highly likely because you're going to be interacting with people. You have to see I'm giving righteous grace and mercy to this person who has done me wrong or who has done wrong. Uh, how does that work? You have to see that person before the Lord who himself is giving to that person righteous grace and mercy. You're not entitled to be judge. He's loving. And he's the judge who judges justly. That's going to come up later in this book. He's not a fool. He doesn't see nothing. He's the holy one who is to be feared, the judge who judges justly. Let's leave the judging to the judge. You've got to see people in those two places, before the Lord who himself gives grace and mercy and before the Lord who isn't a fool, who's got it right and who will take care of things. He will discipline, he will judge, he will correct Maybe there's some way that you, particularly in abusive situations, where you need to take some steps to be safe. Yes. Yes. But most of the time, we're not in situations like that. Most of the time, we're just ticked off. And you've got to see the person before the Lord who gives grace and mercy and before the Lord who judges justly. And to hear his call to you, love one another earnestly. So consider that. But also consider this. I think there's something more here that as we kind of wrap our minds around something else that actually helps move me towards obedience, not just the straightforward command. It is a straightforward command. And remember, the emphasis in the passage is left with you, the one who's doing. You purified yourself. You embrace the gospel. You love. There's a, there's a 
It's put on you there. But I'm always helped, and God always wants to help us with something more than just do it, to, to, to kind of present to us the beauty of God, the grace that then moves us to keep his commands. And I find that as I ask this question of why, why is this like this? I get it. He saved us through his brotherly love, and, and then he commands us to love one another. But why is that? So I want to think about that a little bit. And then something I think good comes out of this that maybe particularly is helpful for the people who are racing me to the door to consider. God saved you. You're a Christian. God saved you. All that we've read about so far. God sent his son. God the Father sent God the Son out of heaven, the realm of love, to earth to experience the exact opposite. Jesus, God the Son took on a body so that Jesus could feel what it's like to not be loved emotionally and physically. Could feel, could partake in what it's like to walk as an alien and a stranger here in the world, as an exile, all by himself. Even the people who were supposedly closest to him totally misunderstood him, and everybody else mocked him and jeered at him, despised him, spit on him, beat on him, and murdered him. Certainly not righteous grace and mercy from us for him. But God sent the Son into that so that we could experience others, so that we could experience God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's righteousness unto us. That happened to you, God's love for you in his Son. He has saved you and you are born again, truly so, truly so. But can you imagine what your life would be like if God so loved you, saved you like this, and then sent you sailing all by your lonesome across the stormy sea of life. Not all by your lonesome, you and Jesus. That's all you need, right? Just you and Jesus. What would that be like, can you imagine? He can. He walked that. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk through the world by your lonesome, just you and, just you and the Lord? Well, you do know that a little bit because you've experienced that sometimes, walking by yourself. You, you went away to college all by yourself, maybe. Didn't know any other Christians there. You moved to a new city before you found a church home. You didn't know anybody else there. You've experienced times like that. Maybe some of us, by choice, kind of live on, on the spiritual island, just you and Jesus. How did that go for you? How did that go for you? Now, I am highly introverted, as I said. So I know there's a large part of me that says, frankly, just fine. I love this last year. <laughs> all, all the different jokes, all the different memes about, you know, when, when you find out that, you know, isolation is your normal lifestyle. <laughs> you know, like, I lived that. I enjoyed that. That was great. Not really. Not really. 
I can do just fine by myself. And a lot of us, I think our church kind of attracts, you know, like attracts like. So probably a lot of us are kind of in this boat over here where, where there's something in you that says, like, I do just fine when I'm by myself. But do you really? Do you really? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little risk there and say, actually, no, you don't. Human nature is such that you don't. You are more vulnerable to temptation by yourself. That's the truth. You grow spiritually more cold by yourself. That's the truth. You are less fervent and effective witness by yourself. That's the truth. Your vision of heaven drops off. Your, your disappointment in life, your dissatisfaction, your internal navel-gazing, which always finds yuck in there because that's what's in there, is yuck. Glory is here. Yuck is here. And by myself, I inevitably, you inevitably do this more. Some of us more than others. That, that's, that's the truth. You are vulnerable. You are easily discouraged. You are more worried. Each Christian is like a burning log. Put together, we are a fire. Satan's design Satan's plan is to take each log and isolate them from the others so that you burn out because that's how it works. Not instantly. So maybe you did fine for the month that you were by yourself when you moved to the new city. But that's how it works. We go out when we burn by ourselves. And God knows that. Jesus knows that himself intimately and personally. Walking by one's self is hard. We're more vulnerable. We're more easily discouraged. We get lost. And so God so loved you, Christian, that he did not just deliver you to a solo salvation. He saved you into a body. He saved you into a family, a church, and to hold that church together, he planted in each person in that church an affection for the people in that church. He planted in you a magnet that is drawn in some way, that resonates with, that begins to vibrate when it gets close to the spirit in each of us. There's something planted in us to hold that church together, an affection, an inclination. And then he commanded us to respond to it and act on it. So it is not just a command that's about you obeying him. It's a command for your good in you obeying him. To, to hold the church together, to, to draw us in, to make a church family that has at its core the Father's DNA, love of God and love of his people. He delivers us into that. Remember, it's all his wise, gracious purpose. He delivers us into that so that we would be held together and would have a solid, airtight, watertight boat within which we can sail across the stormy sea. Not me, myself, us. And... So if the atmosphere in that boat is the atmosphere of heaven, the atmosphere of love, not indifference, not hard work, not obedience to the commandments, the atmosphere in the boat as we sail across the sea, the atmosphere of the living room in which we meet here as exiles in the larger world, the atmosphere 
is the atmosphere of heaven. It smells like our Father. It feels like Him. It's love. That's why He planted it in me and put me in you and vice versa, all of us. That's blessing to us that we gather here in this people and, and yeah, it's hard work and yeah, it's awkward. I do best when I just say, uh, who cares? There's something good there for you and for me. A ship that'll hold you, that'll, that'll keep you encouraged to walk with him and an atmosphere that'll bless you as you experience the atmosphere of love and experience the active loving of God through the people of God because the spirit that lives in me loves you and then through me grabs a hold of you to bless you and vice versa. We experience the atmosphere of heaven. We experience God. We are kept safe here in the church. That is a great blessing to you and it is a great testimony to the watching world because nothing in the world works like that. I'm not saying that people in the world can't be nice. People in the world can't love. I'm not saying that. I'm saying nothing in the world works like the church, collectively. I've met a lot of non-Christians that are frankly a whole lot nicer than a lot of Christians I know. I'm talking about a body. I don't know any bodies of non-Christians that are filled with love like the churches. That's different. It is good for us. It's a testimony to the world around us that the truth is the truth. That the imperishable life that's in us is not going to perish. Love in the church is God's great gift of love for us and for the world. It witnesses to the world about God and his nature and his goal of bringing about a community just like this one. Christians, brothers and sisters, earnestly love one another from the heart. And I'm out of time. But let me just say, comma, and those who hate you. Because there's a whole nother realm of love that we should think about. It is not only, it, this passage is about, and our focus should be on first, Love one another, love the church, love the brethren. But the change that's happened in us to free us from slavery to self, the, the divine nature planted in us that's growing, that also is going to make us love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That also is a witness to them. But this is a unique community, the church, built by God, to love like him in here and out there, but it starts in here. Brothers and sisters, love one another earnestly from the heart. Let me pray. Father, will you grow this in us? Will you, will you grow in it appropriate application? We are all so very different. There's different ways that we all will respond to this and should respond to it. So will you speak to each particular person and call each particular person to what you have for that one? And Lord, will you make from this a people 
a group that feels like you, that feels like heaven. Help us to love one another, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.